host, Emily. I'm glad you're here. It's episode 16. It's hard to believe that season one of the podcast is almost over. I mean, just two weeks left, and then we're on to a new topic. What's it going to be? I don't know yet. I should probably think about that. I have a whole list of possibilities that I might toss to you, actually, to help me decide on what our next conversation should be about. But I've had so much fun doing this, and I'm excited to figure out what this next season was going to be all about. But right now, we're talking about the classical animated Disney feature, Hercules. A quick reminder that if you want to watch along with me, and by watch along, I mean join me in watching 48 animated Disney movies over the course of the summer. I'm calling it quits at the end of August. We'll see if I can get through them. I'm pretty close. I think it's going to happen. Um, But there's a printable copy of the challenge list in the show notes, or you can always sign up for my newsletter, justkeepswimming.substack.com. There's a new issue each week where I talk about pop culture, life lessons, and whatnot. If you subscribe, you can make sure not to miss the conversation. It'll just get delivered to your inbox every Sunday. It's that easy. But let's get started with the story here. And this one I had to think a little bit about, but it finally came to me because it really um, goes back to the core of Emily, I guess. Back to little Emily in a way. When I was in sixth grade, we started learning about ancient history. I fell in love with stories of the Greeks and Romans, how innovative and advanced their cultures were, despite the fact that they didn't have modern day amenities and technology. I just couldn't wrap my brain around that, really. The fact that they could do all of these things and think all of these amazing things um, without plumbing, (laughs) as I know it, or air conditioning, or computers and the internet. And they were thinkers and dreamers and engineers and architects. They were athletes and politicians and farmers and scholars. But what I loved most and what still seriously gives me tingles today is that the world they built still exists. The buildings and sculptures, the arenas and temples, they're they're now living, breathing history that is firmly rooted in the past but accessible in the present. I mean, they're still here despite wars and environmental changes and humans. We get to glimpse just a little bit of what that world was, those minds and those people. And that to me is insanely cool. Archaeology is insanely cool. The fact that we can do all of that. I mean, these scientists are in a sense, treasure hunters. They're in search for a better understanding of where we've been, the history of humanity. And after a particularly fascinating lesson on Howard Carter's discovery of King Tut's tomb in Egypt, I knew, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. Did it happen? No, no, it didn't. And I'll, I'll explain why here in a little bit. But at that time, I wanted to discover the past to make it accessible to the world and preserve it for generations to come. That seemed noble to me, despite the fact that there are some issues um, with archaeology and anthropology and that science where people have had the wrong motivations and taken advantage of different cultures and countries and um, kind of a sad history in a way. But How some of that has made its way back home is also very interesting. In all actuality, I'm pretty sure a part of me just wanted to be Indiana Jones, (laughs) which maybe one day on the podcast we'll explore more about my love for that character, but also the acknowledgement of how problematic those movies actually are. So let's fast forward, though, a few years. I'm entering college. I've decided to major in history, especially after sitting through this really engrossing lecture about the 1920s during a college visit with a particular professor. It was that professor that would later completely challenge me academically and intellectually, and I kind of credit him for 
becoming the thinker I am today, having an opinion and being willing to share that opinion. That wasn't always who I was. I was really shy and introverted and he helped break me of that. I mean, he literally said he was going to break me and he did, (laughs) but in a, a kind and compassionate way, he saw in me what I didn't see in myself, which I will always, always appreciate him for. But my college career was a a fascinating mix of history and anthropology and religion. I was taking all of these classes all at the same time. And the topics would just weave together, in and out together, in sometimes a confusing way, but often a beautiful way, that it really is all history when you look at it, where we come from, what culture means, what religion means, how that has affected the history of our world. It's, It's beautiful, and I was loving it all. I mean, I was just sinking a bit in a ridiculous amount of reading. And at one particular point, I did maybe suffer a little bit from a crisis of faith, but every topic was new and interesting. And I was so excited to be in those classes. And I was always looking to see what that next class was going to be. And then the classical archaeology class came up and I, I had been having, I had my eye on it for a while. And it finally opened up and the professor was actually the head librarian of the school, which is very cool and an archeologist. So he was, the class was maybe a little boring, (laughs) only in that boring and fascinating. He liked to do slideshows of all of the digs he had been on, which was fascinating. The first, like first hour or so, but when it kept happening, you're like, all right, I get it. You got to travel to all these different places, but I was so excited, so excited. And then I realized almost immediately that it just wasn't for me. (laughs) Kind of hilariously because it was slow work, as if I didn't already know that about history, like you can speed history up. No, it, it is what it is. And how you go about understanding it is different, but you can't necessarily, you can't change it. Um, We talked about funding and permits, two things that absolutely terrified me. Uh, Working with local governments and putting together your crew that the diggings, the digging process was precise and it required not only skill, but more patience than I think I would ever be capable of. And to top it off, you kind of had to be an artist. You have to graph and document every square inch of the artifacts you find and your whole dig site. I mean, you might find a a clay shard, which is just one little corner of a very big site and you have the whole site that you have to map out. There was actually an assignment that he would give us. He had packed up in boxes some artifacts that he had, and we had to put on the white gloves, go to the library, check them out, and then you had to write descriptions of them, how an archaeologist might do that. What's the size? What's the coloring? Do you notice any interesting marks, identifying marks that might be of interest? Where was it located? Um, So looking at all of that information, and I I was fine at that. I could do that. You tell me to write something, I can write it. But then you had to sketch it. And the first box I went to, we had to do it over the course of the semester, like five or six boxes. And the first box I, I came to, I, I think it was it was a pottery shard. And I started to sketch it out. And I'm looking at this thing. And I'm looking back at my drawing. And I'm looking at the shard. And I'm looking back at my drawing. I was like, you cannot tell what this thing is. So I turned it in. He's like, you're going to need to work on that a little bit. Well, I, I maybe might have um, invited my best friend who just was also an art major to the library with me the next time. And she kind of did a light sketch of it and I went back and filled it in. So yeah, I maybe cheated a little, but 
you, I wanted to be able to see what it actually was. And I just needed a little help. But I, I realized, I realized doing all of that, that while I loved the class and I loved the conversation, I was never going to be that person that ends up somewhere across the world begging people for money and digging in the dirt and navigating local politics. It, that just never seemed to be in my wheelhouse. Archaeology still fascinates me, though. To think that items are still being discovered and our understanding of history is still changing just blows my mind. You know what else fascinates me? The way the Disney animators use the history and those artifacts to craft a retelling of the mythology of Hercules. What a transition, guys. I don't think I've gotten any better at those. <laughs> there's, there's room to improve. Maybe, maybe I'll get it by the second season. I don't know. Oh, well, let's just go ahead and dive into the conversation. Are you ready? But first, an overly simplified summary of Disney's animated feature, Hercules. There's a lot going on in this one. It's a little tough, but we'll see how it goes. So a baby god is born to Zeus and Hades named Hercules. And Hercules is destined to be the hero that will stop the Titans, these big, baddie monster things that Zeus had locked away um, he's, he's destined to, to defeat them once they reemerge in the future. They, um, the fates have noticed they're coming and Hercules is the one that's going to be able to stop them. Hades, the power hungry, jealous god of the underworld and brother to Zeus, plots to kill baby Hercules so he can rule Mount Olympus instead. But in typical Disney villain sidekick fashion, his two cronies, Pain and Panic, they botch the job, and Hercules instead grows up as a mortal on Earth, training to become the hero that will one day save the world. That wasn't too bad. I mean, I, I left some stuff out, but that's pretty good. Are you ready for the list? Let's just dive in. Number one, I love Charlton Heston's voice at the beginning. Uh, sure, he may be a, a tad problematic, but he has a very smooth, low sound that is perfect for narration. It's kind of interesting that they pulled in such a big name for such a brief moment in the film, though. I mean, or that they didn't revisit the narration, that they just have it at the beginning. They could have potentially started with the muses, but the transition to the muses is perfect. So clever using ancient Greek urns as the focus of the storytelling. And that's what I'm talking about. You can even see how the, the artwork on the, um, the animation resembles the artwork on Greek faces. A lot of, there's a lot of swirls and um, you notice it a lot in Hercules armor and like the cleft of his chin. But then you also see a lot of the sharp edges of the face that are very similar to what you see in ancient Greek pottery. Very cool how they did all of that. I just, they're so smart, these animators. It's wonderful. Number two, when I was growing up, this is kind of a confession. I never <laughs> equated Disney movies to musical theater. I mean, that's basically what it is. But I never connected those two things together. I mean, even when they started to show up on Broadway, it didn't occur to me that the original design of the movies was very theater-esque. I mean, there's kind of three acts, the the intro, the, the building um, tension and the climax. Uh, then they have the opening song, which you often see in musical theater. But now I see it everywhere. I mean, I can just imagine the muses stepping on the stage with the gospel truth, setting the scene for what's going to happen, maybe some cool um, background setting that moves to show or people running across the stage. I don't know. And then a set change to Mount Olympus and a baby shower with the focus bouncing from character to character. 
it's brilliant, really, how they set this up. And I, I guess it just made it all the more easy to transition those to the stage. I, I never have done any research to see if that was kind of their intention or if they were like, hey, we've already got some built-in songs and a story. Why don't we just move it to Broadway? I'll have to look that up. If you know the answer to that, please let me know. Then you can do my, my internet searching for me. Number three. So Zeus has never, ever, ever been the same to me after watching Dodgeball. Rip Torn will just be forever the wheelchair-bound dodgeball coach that taught the team to dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. I, I, can't, I can't hear Zeus and not think of that character from Dodgeball. <laughs> it, is, it kills me. And as for Zeus, he's not my favorite character. He smiles a lot, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people could probably say that about me, but he just doesn't seem like the world's best dad, which I think my problem is actually movie magic, which we'll probably get to later on in the list. But he, he does really pull it together. He pulls together the perfect present in a pinch at the baby shower. Why he hadn't thought about this to begin with, he just kind of pulls it out of the air. But I do want someone to make me a Pegasus. That just seems like the perfect gift. Number four, Pain and Panic might be my least favorite villain sidekicks. It's it's the voice actors, I think. I don't like their voices. Um, they're, they're kind of chaotic. They're ridiculous, but not funny. But I think they're supposed to be funny. And then oftentimes I just feel really bad for them because Hades is just, you don't get that camaraderie that you get between like Yzma and Kronk. They are his lackeys. There is not a partnership there. I mean, you even see a partnership between Ursula and Flotsam and Jetsam, but this, you don't. I mean, Hades just has some, I mean, understandable, but serious anger management issues that he needs to take care of. And I just don't think that kind of humor is my kind of humor. And I, the way the creatures are drawn, I don't know what the creatures are. And that always is always hard for me to, to figure out. Number five. Okay, this, <laughs> as I was watching, I had never had this thought before. And now that I see it, I can't unsee it. And I could be completely off. And that's totally cool if I am. You can argue with me. That would be nice. But Hercules has serious Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer vibes. I mean, substitute the blinking nose for super strength. That often leads to tragedy. And you have kids who never get invited to participate in reindeer games. So what does he do? He leaves home, like Rudolph, and gathers a group of misfits for friends, like Rudolph, only to return at the end of the movie, like Rudolph, as the hero everyone needs. Now, if this could have been a perfect movie if he had found a dentist elf as a misfit friend. Um, that Rudolph is one of my favorite things about the Christmas season. I grew up watching it. Uh, we call them Rudolph parties whenever it comes on TV. We're tr we all try to watch it wherever we're at. Um, I have ornaments on my tree that are Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It just is one of my favorites. And so now that I've seen that, Hercules, I think will forever be Rudolph to me. <laughs> Number six, the song Go the Distance. That is a great hilltop song. I, I think I might have mentioned that on Tuesday um, as, as a potential that I almost chose, but listening to it again, it's just one that you can, you're kind of walking up slowly and he's on his journey. And then when he gets to the top, you're like, I will find my way. I will go the distance. I always, I told you I would never sing. Maybe I talk that. Maybe I didn't hurt your ears too bad, but it is a great hilltop song. I've always loved that song. It's kind of interesting that there's 
usually one song in every movie that you're just like, yep, that's the one. And that that's not the, my favorite song of the movie, but it's that Hilltop song for me. And I mean, especially when it's sung by Michael Bolton. What an interesting choice of a musician to pick to tackle that one. Like who was sitting around and they're like, you know what this movie needs? Monster ballad expert, Michael Bolton. <laughs> he should sing this song. Ah, oh, another writer's room thing that I would love to been a fly on the wall for. Number seven. I'm I'm unsure about how I feel about Danny DeVito. I mean, he's hit or miss for me. I I don't dislike him. I'm I he's been really good in some things I like, but I like him in small doses, I think. In Romancing the Stone, he plays that bumbling bundle of fun that's chasing them around the movie the whole time. I like him in that, but it's like a it's a hard pass for me as penguin in batman returns i did not like him in that i mean his and in this movie in particular his rough east coast accent is a bit startling in the greek ancient greek setting and phil's island is is probably my least favorite song in the movie it's not my favorite so it's not it's not a dislike of danny devito i just i don't know if he's the voice i would have chosen for phil i mean but phil is kind of a wee bit grumpy like danny devito often plays i don't know i don't know the, the jury's still out on that one. Number eight. Okay, let's talk about Megara. I like her a little more every time I watch this movie. I mean, despite the fact that she ends up literally selling her soul for a man, that irks me just a little. I mean, it is her journey, which we'll talk about here in a second, but it just keeps happening in Disney movies in one shape, way, shape, or form. And it just, it's tiresome. It's getting old to me, but despite that, she remains a sassy, no-guff, sarcastic femme fatale. You don't get a lot of sarcasm in Disney movies, and I love it, and it's just frankly refreshing. She's been leading a hard life, but she's not a victim or a passive actor to the story that's playing out around her. She's writing her own story, which I just love, making her own choices. Her untimely demise was her own choice, and despite being a pessimist after an unfaithful love got her into the shady servitude to Hades in the first place. She's willing to open her heart and it's love that gets her out of it in the end. And to top it all off, she has the best song in the movie. So I just, I really like her that, um, and I'm going to, you'll hear me say it later on, but her quote about, yeah, I'm a, a damsel and yeah, I'm in distress, but you know what? I got this. I don't need your help. I, I like that attitude that she's not looking for someone to save her. If she's going to be saved, she's going to do it herself. And she does kind of in the end, even if that means selling her soul for a man. Number nine, the Hercules merchandise when he gets all heroic <laughs> just kills me. I mean, it's probably a bit of a nod to the Disney juggernaut and their money-making schemes. But when he holds up the action figure and kind of squeezes it and the, bi the biceps are flexing, I mean, stop it. It just, it kills me. I love it. I maybe one day want to do something that would make me an action figure. Actually, no, I don't. Who knows what that action figure would look like. <laughs> Number 10. Sometimes the Disney Easter eggs are confusing. Why Scar's head during the painting scene? So Hercules is now considered a hero. They are painting his likeness. He has the the head of a, a lion on his head. Um, but Hercules is the hero. I mean, why put the villain of a different movie on your hero? I mean, it's probably in that, hey, this villain has de be been defeated and 
and Hercules conquered him, but he didn't. I mean, everybody knows that that scar from the Lion King, so you wouldn't, and you know how scar meets his end. So I don't know. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, that particular nod. And it's just creepy <laughs> when he throws the head on the ground and you just see kind of a hollow, hollow scar head laying there. I just, I don't know. It gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. I don't love it. I also don't love like bear rugs sitting on a floor with the bear's head on there. It just, it's a poor taste in my opinion. Number 11. Okay. Uh, Disney characters, they fall in love very quickly. I mean, I knew this, but I'm feeling it more and more and more as I make my way through the list. I mean, perchance, do they need to get lives? They need other hobbies, something to fill their days. I mean, while she's denying it throughout her whole song, Meg has fallen in love after two meetings, two with Wonder Boy, two very short meetings. And after three, she's willing to sacrifice her life. Then there's Hercules. I mean, the dude has been living alone on an island. I just feel like Phil should have prepared, you know, prepared him a little more before be releasing him out into the world. Like, hey, dude, there's going to be there's going to be girls out there and they're going to bat their eyes at you and they're going to flirt and they're going to do their thing. Maybe don't fall in love with the first one that comes along. I mean, I, I see this a lot in Hallmark movies, too, how over the course of a week, the girl, it's always the girl, decides to move across the country to the small town and, and stay there and make a life for herself, which is sweet, but just, it's like, no, 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 you've got your, your life, you've got your ambitions, that's okay, that's cool. Oh my goodness, we should totally do a Hallmark season this Christmas. Oh, that could be fun. We could talk about all the new ones that have come out. Oh my goodness, I, I got off track, didn't I? Well, just we'll write that down. That could potentially be a possibility in the future. Number 12. All right. So that magic. When I first started watching this movie, I thought, you know what? I think I'm okay with the magic. This magic makes sense to me, you know? I mean, it's probably because I'm familiar enough with Greek mythology, but the entire world is created around the premise that there is a dysfunctional family of gods ruling the world. The people know about it, so they are completely okay with impossible interactions. That makes sense to me. Instead of, you know, aliens coming and everybody's like, yeah, it's fine, and I'll just get on the back of a, a scooter with one. I mean, they know that there's monsters and super strength and apocalypses. They might not like it, but there's context for it. That's how magic should be. But, but then I kept watching, and that's not entirely true. There was a little something I didn't understand. It's probably explained somewhere in the myths, but they don't explain it in the movies. So Hades is able to walk the earth. He's often coming down to earth to mess with Meg, um, to encourage her to do his bidding. Uh, he just pops up out of nowhere. He's able to interact with humans because at that point she is, she is human. He's down on Terra messing with things quite a bit. I mean, they make a point to show him down like he's standing on a cliff and comes around a corner or he's, he's there in the garden after Meg sings her song. Why wasn't Zeus able to do that? Why was Hercules held hostage to talking to Zeus only in the temple? That just doesn't seem fair. I mean, why did Zeus have limited powers? Shouldn't he have even more powers than Haiti if he's ruling Mount Olympus? Or is he just a really horrible, lazy parent who wouldn't track down his son? I, I, don't, I don't understand that particular part of the, 
magic, which leads to number 14, my final thought. I do really appreciate that after Hercules decides not to stay in Mount Olympus, he returns home to the family that raised him at the end of the movie. The first people he goes to see are his adoptive parents. And I think that is just so sweet. And it's an acknowledgement of their sacrifice and love. But then I think about it a bit, you know, there was quite a bit of time that has passed since he decided to go on his journey, you know, go the distance. And to that moment where he decides not to be on Olympus. And I just try to imagine the scenario potentially where he decided to stay in Olympus. So A, I mean, it would have been a jerk move if he hadn't gone to say goodbye first. Be like, hold it, Zeus. Let me go say goodbye to my parents. Let me let them know that I am okay. And then I will come back. But B, could he have? I mean, following the Zeus magic logic, what if Hercules couldn't have returned to Earth to see his mom and dad? That would have been horrible. I mean, if someone had never built a temple in his honor, is he just basically dead to them? I, I don't love that. Were there temples for every single Greek god? Huh. I have to, I'm, I look at this. I'm making a list of things I'm going to look up. All right. So that's the list. How about we take a look at some life lessons? We've already covered a bit of this, but let's revisit it. So Hercules, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he has unique gifts. They both do, that, that make them other in the eyes of the people around them. They're not really other. Uh, the problem is with other people, not them, people that aren't able to open their hearts and accept the extraordinary in someone, but they, they just don't feel like they belong, quite like they belong. They're out of sync with what society tells them they should be like. We all feel that from time to time. We all feel awkward and different. We all wish to be normal, whatever that means. And, and that can change depending on where you're at and who you're with. But that otherness, those traits that make us different, they often lead to amazing things. I mean, just think about it. If, if Hercules had been normal, the world and the gods would have had no chance at defeating the Titans when they returned. It was his nobility, his heroism, his compassion that once were underappreciated ended up saving the day in the end. Sometimes you just have to give it time. The waiting is never fun, but the waiting will prepare you for those moments when your unique skills and traits will be exactly what's needed one day. Don't hide or try to diminish who you are. Be proud of those gifts. Own them so that when the time comes and you can share them with the world, you're being your true self. And once again, there's the reminder that life won't always be fair. <laughs> People don't always play fair. You may find yourself in a situation that goes against what you believe. Meg did. But like, Meg, don't be a victim. Don't let others dictate how you react. You are in charge of your own decision making. It's not always easy. I mean, sometimes it is the biggest leap that you will have to take to choose to make a decision that goes against what people are asking of you, but be an active participant in your life and make the choices that are right for you. I would love to hear how you think, what you think about Hercules. Is it one of your favorites? Is it one that you could, you know, take or leave? Um, so just be sure to, to send that along. I would love to hear what you think about that. My final wrap-up favorite scene, I think it's probably the Hydra scene where Hercules really starts to show his, his hero muscle. Um, I just love 
his um, problem solving skills and how Pegasus comes to help and um, kind of how things just go completely off script as other heads are coming off and he doesn't really know what to do is more just popping up. I really like that scene. Favorite song? Oh, I won't say I'm in love. I mean, you've got Meg singing and the muses doing a response in like a doo-wop 1950s style song. It doesn't feel like it should fit so well in this particular movie, but it does. I mean, the muses make everything fit. I just, I love them. And my favorite quote, I mentioned it earlier. I am a damsel. I'm in distress. I can handle this. Have a nice day. All right. So what else did I watch? Quick rundown. I watched The Lion King. You know, there's not really a lot to that movie. I, my, my nephew loves it. I know little kids love it because of the animals. And there's some good songs. I really do like some of the songs. But plot-wise, there's not a whole lot to it. And I know it's kind of basically a retelling of Hamlet. But you miss the intricacy of the storytelling. I mean, it's kind of top-heavy with, with the murder of Mufasa. But then you skip ahead... And there's just nothing to older Simba until he has to come back to fight. But you're not really completely on his side rooting for him because he's done nothing in the in-between time that you see character growth. I, I don't know. It just wasn't, it's not on my list of favorites. And I, to be honest, don't think it needed to be remade. <laughs> and I also watched a Goofy movie. Now that one, that one is brilliant. It is so underappreciated. People just don't talk about it all that, that much. I have, um, I bought a Powerline t-shirt though. And I went to CVS to pick up some medicine this past weekend. And uh, the lady at the register was like, I love your Powerline shirt. My husband just loves him. And I <laughs> started to laugh and maybe, you know, as I do on here, started to talk about pop culture and the movie and why it's so underappreciated. And she's just kind of nodding at me as like, okay, I've got to stop. But I love that one. I love the father-son relationship. You do see growth in Max throughout the movie, um, how the songs really guide the movie along and you kind of know at what point in the story you are and that character growth because of the songs. It's just, it's so good. I enjoy it. Ah, but that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And I think this week I'm gonna, this weekend I'm gonna toss up a poll. So if you, um, I'll I'll list maybe four or five different things I'm thinking about. Please, you know, vote for what you would like to see for season two. My goal is to start recording like early now so that I'm not doing it week by week. Um, that way, if I get a little busy, I'm not behind or potentially having to skip a week. So um, I'm going to toss that out there. I would love to get your feedback on that. And if you've got the time to rate and review, that would be so awesome. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.